All right, well, we're going to go ahead and dive right in. You should have grabbed one of the handouts on chapter four on creation. It's only three paragraphs. We're going to move through it pretty quickly. Only three paragraphs there. We're going to see three things in three paragraphs. We're going to see, first of all, God's glory in creation. Then we're going to see in paragraphs two through three, God's image in creation. Two things are going to specifically stand out in those last two paragraphs. We're going to see mankind in creation. And then in that last paragraph, we'll see mankind in covenant. And that'll become more clear here in just a minute. Six things are going to stand out, though, in that first paragraph. We're going to see the genesis of creation. We're going to see its author, purpose, content, span, and result. And so follow along with me. Let's read paragraph one. In the beginning, it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. We see, first of all, the genesis of creation. It says there, it was in the beginning. The Presbyterian Confession, Westminster, has that phrase a couple of lines down, but the Baptists move it to the very beginning for no other significant reason that we know of other than just mirroring Scripture itself. That in the beginning... This speaks to a number of things. First of all, it's to say that all things that have been made are not God and that God is distinct from all things that are made. That if God is eternal and the creation has a beginning, then the creation cannot be God, neither can God be created. And so we see a creator and creature distinction automatically from the very first phrase in the beginning. And then it elaborates. Notice this. We see not just the genesis of creation, but the author of creation. It is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the work of creation is an extra-Trinitarian work. It is a work of the triune God beyond himself from his eternal decree. And we see that from the very beginning of the Bible, don't we? Genesis 1. We see the Spirit hovering over the water. We see the Logos, the Son speaking, and we ultimately see the Father governing all things. Of course, what we see in creation, we also see is true in redemption. We see in Ephesians 1, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working together in recreation. And so it is a Trinitarian work. But we also see here the purpose of creation. What is it? Well, notice inside the paragraph, the purpose of creation is the manifestation of the glory of God. And so we see on the one hand that God is transcendent and that he is before creation and he is above creation. But we also see that God is imminent and that the almighty, eternal, and infinite God has stooped down to create all things. Both the transcendence and the imminence of God is revealed. And not only that, but we see what specifically is it that's revealed. It is his power, his wisdom, and his goodness. Do you notice a, a cross-reference there? Down at the bottom of the paragraph, Romans 1.20. Some of you are already familiar, aren't you? Romans chapter 1. What does the Apostle Paul say then about God's creation? What does it do? 
We'll begin in chapter in verse 19. He says, What can be known about God is plain to mankind because God has shown it to them. How has he shown it to them? Well, specifically in what has been made, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So the confession is taking great, going to great lengths to try to just say what the Bible is saying in this regard. That in the same way that we saw in all the way back in chapter 1, paragraph 1, the creation declaring the glory of God, God revealing himself and what he has created. So here we see that the triune God displays in his creation his power and his divine attributes, namely his wisdom and his goodness. But notice then next the content of creation. There it says he has created or made the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible. That word world is not referring specifically to the earth. It's a, it's a way that the Puritans or the Reformed scholastics would have referred to the entire created order. And we know that because it's qualified by that phrase, whether visible or invisible. What it's talking about there is not those things that are easy to see and then those things that are microscopic, microbes and atoms and things like that. It's talking about those things which are visible can be observed and those things which are spiritual, powers and principalities. All things have been created by God. All of the cosmos and everything in it has been created by God and is thus not God, but is distinct from God, and God is transcendent over and is before all of it. But notice here that it also says here that the span of creation is six days. Now, we need to be really careful as modern evangelicals to not import anachronistically the debates and the discussions that we have today about the age of the earth and about evolution and things like that back into the confession. Those things would have been non-categories for the writers. They are, along with the rest of the Reformation, ushering in a move away from, in many regards, a largely allegorical way to read the Bible into a more literal way of reading the Bible. And so the authors of the confession, and I agree with them, is interpreting six days as a span of six 24-hour periods of yom is the most accurate translation for that from the Hebrew, six 24-hour days in the space or the span of six days. Now, we need to be really careful when we get to this point because we want to be as careful as we can to cling to the things that God makes explicit in his word, and yet we don't want to import our own polemical endeavors, our own attempts at apologetics back into the Bible. You realize when Moses wrote Genesis, he wasn't writing it to modern evolutionary theorists. And even though the truth of God's word in Genesis nevertheless confronts every error in the world because all truth is ultimately God's truth and his truth is revealed in the scriptures, we have to be careful not to read more into the scriptures than what is actually there. And so even the Reformed scholastics would have granted a wide variety of interpretations regarding the age of the earth. They would say that this is something that is not so much to be received as a matter of faith to be believed, but is rather the opinions of men. 
Now remember what I said, that when the Reformed scholastics use that kind of language, what they're not saying, what they're not debating, is the merits between a relatively young creation and theistic evolution. That would have been a non-category for them. What they're doing is taking what they can see in the biblical data and understanding then what we find, at least in the scriptures, which the world will always find as folly, is a relatively young earth and a literal six-day creation. We don't want to set ourselves to trying to number those years. There have been saints across the centuries that have, that have thought very differently about it. And yet, at the same time, though we might not be overly dogmatic on that, it is worth being dogmatic on this span of six days. And one of the reasons that it is worth holding that, at least within the overall logic of the confession, is because that's going to come into play later when it starts, when it, when it addresses the Lord's day. All of this is understanding that the Lord and his providence has set up an actual week in a span of 24-hour days, and that one of those days, according to a creation ordinance, has been set aside for the right and proper worship of God according to the positive laws that he sets in given covenants. Saturday under the, new, under the old covenant, given to Israel, and the first day of the week in the new covenant. And so this is one of those ways that we want to be careful to read the confession left to right, not just top to bottom, because the concerns of the, author, of the writers are not necessarily the concerns that you and I have. And so we want to be careful not to anachronistically read it in there. It provides liberty for us to disagree on how to interpret the biblical data Finally, notice that the result of God's creation was that it was all very good. That the creation is inherently good because it was from God, and God, according to chapter 2, paragraph 2, is the fountain of all being. In other words, because God is good, and God is the fountain of all being, all that God creates is good. It is Good. So we see here in paragraph one, God displaying his glory in creation. But next we see in paragraphs two and three, God's image in creation. We're going to see in paragraph two, man in creation. And then we're going to see in paragraph three, man in covenant. Let's consider each of these in order. In that second paragraph, we're going to see three things as we read. We're going to see their crown, their constitution, and their condition. Read along with me. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male, and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. But besides the law written in their hearts, they receive a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures." We want to consider both of these in connection with one another, which is why I just read them the way that I did. Consider, first of all, their crown. 
that he created them male and female, and that he created them after he had made all other creatures. He was the crown jewel of creation. And unlike the other uh, creatures, he was made with a reasonable and, this is important, immortal soul. That same word immortal is going to come up later in the confession, specifically in the chapters on eschatology on the immortality of the soul, of eternal life or eternal death upon the judgment of God at the end of the age. And so here we have their crown, that they are unique in creation, reasonable and immortal souls. And this tacitly denies at least two errors of our own day. It tacitly denies, on the one hand, annihilationism, the idea that our souls cease to be and are annihilated, that is, those who have rejected God under God's judgment and condemned will be annihilated rather than spend eternity in hell under his condemnation. And it tacitly denies also soul sleep, that there is a point where the, where the soul ceases to be and then is later revived that both of these, the immortality and the reasonableness of the soul speaks to the fact that we are created to be eternal beings. And all of that is ultimately reflective of our constitution. That mankind was created for a life that was fit to God. They were created for God. They were made after the image of God, specifically in knowledge righteousness and true holiness. And so it's important here that the image of God is being defined in moral terms. It's not being defined ultimately in biological terms. It's not being defined merely by the plurality of a man and a woman. It's being defined not even by the fact that man is a spiritual being. It's being defined ultimately in moral terms. That's going to become more specific as we see down below the law of God is being written on his heart. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image. And here the confession is taking the language of both Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24 and conflating them to make, to summarize their confession here. Take your Bibles and follow along with me. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Do not lie to one another, verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now the Apostle Paul is going to contrast the old self with the new self, verse 10. And you've put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. So what's that first word there? Being made after the image of God in what? Knowledge. Now I want you to turn over to Ephesians 4.24. Ephesians 4.24. Here we see Paul contrasting the old self with the new self again, putting it off in verse 22. And then he says in verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we see in Colossians 3, 
They're the image of God in knowledge, and now we see in Ephesians 4, the image of God in righteousness and holiness. And so here is all hearkening back that in Christ, the image of God is being conformed in us. Christ, the true and better Adam, demonstrating in his person true humanity, who Adam was meant to be, what Adam was supposed to be, the reality that Adam was supposed to be confirmed into on the basis of his own obedience. And yet Christ is fully that. That to be in Christ is to be conformed to all of these things that is the very image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So you can see here how the confession is going to great lengths to draw out different scriptures and summarize the doctrine therein. They have, as a result, the law of God written on their hearts, and they have the power to fulfill it. And this ultimately speaks to their condition, which is twofold. It's first of all moral, that when the man and the woman were created, they were created with the ability to obey God's law. Not only that, they knew what God's law was because it was written on their hearts. We see this someplace else in the scriptures, don't we? Do you see a cross-reference there at the bottom? There under footnote 7, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And here, Paul is addressing the Gentiles, all of mankind. And what does he have to say about mankind with regards to the law of God? The Jews were, getting the, were given the law on tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And yet Paul's going to argue that all of mankind, including the Jews, which is why they're all condemned has the law of God written on their hearts by God. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verses 14 and 15, says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is the law delivered through Moses to Israel, he's speaking to Jews here, when they who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so we see that all men made in the image of God, having the law of God written on their hearts, are ultimately moral creatures. This is part of the, their crowning in creation. It's part of their constitution as those created in God's image, and it is inherent to their condition. But Adam and Eve were not just moral creatures. We see there at the very end of the paragraph that they were also mutable creatures. When I say mutable, what do I mean? But that they were changeable. In other words, they had the ability to sin. This is why the good news of the gospel is not taking sinners back to the garden. Adam and Eve were created innocent. There was no sin in them. And yet, even in that created order, according to God's decree, there was the possibility of sin. This is going to be important when we get to the third paragraph. Because in order to be confirmed or to be locked into, in order to become unchangeable in righteousness, as Christ is, they would need to obey God according to the terms of the covenant, the very thing they failed to do. That's chapter 6 on sin. 
And yet, what we see is that being made by God with the law written on their hearts, they had, notice at the very end, they were subject to change. So some people might say, well, listen, boy, if we could just go back to the garden before sin had come into the world, wouldn't that be the best? Beloved, what we're going to see in the gospel is that Christ has restored us to something even better than Eden. That in Christ, our righteousness is not mutable, but is immutable, unchangeable. That we are confirmed in our standing before God, and as such, we will enter into the very rest that Christ has won for us at the end of the age, if we are in him. And so we, though we have remaining and dwelling sin in us, enjoy in Christ a better spiritual state, than Adam and Eve enjoyed even yet without sin prior to the fall. That we are immutably righteous in Christ. They were mutable in their righteousness. Which leads us to the third and final paragraph, and that is man in covenant. And here we see the language of the covenant of works, even though it's not used. And specifically what it's concerning is this law that was written on their hearts, but rather... A, a command that was given not to eat of a particular tree. And so here we have the confession distinguishing between what we might call moral laws, those laws that come from God that are unchanging, that require perpetual, permanent, and perfect obedience written on man's heart, and positive laws. That is, those laws which are posited in the context of a covenantal relationship. Moral laws, those laws that are written on our hearts, are unchanging because they're rooted in the very nature of God himself. That just as God is holy, we are to be holy, and his law is holy, Romans 7. His moral law is holy, and yet positive laws are not inherently moral. There is nothing inherently moral with eating or not eating from a tree unless God, the covenant maker, makes a command. And so because God, in the form of a command, has told the man and the woman what they can do and what they cannot do, this extra command, in the context of a covenant, it now becomes morally obligating. And so apart from God instituting the law, there was no moral obligation to obey it because positive laws are not inherently moral. Adam and Eve required obedience permanently, perpetually, and perfectly according to the moral law, but their obedience had to stretch beyond the moral law written on their hearts, even out to the positive law that God posited in that covenant with Adam in the garden, such that that obedience, their works of righteousness in obeying God's law in the context of that covenant would at some point confirm them, justify them before an all-holy God such that their mutable righteousness would become immutable. You realize when you get to Romans 5 and Paul talks about Adam as being a type of the one to come, this is what he means. That in all of these ways, by the obedience of the first Adam, that first Adam could have merited both for himself and for all of his offspring eternal life, confirming himself and all those who come from him, all those who are in him, into God's rest. And yet, 
Adam failed and the second Adam didn't. That according to the second Adam's obedience, he fulfilled what was required in the covenant of works such that the covenant of grace and all of its blessings and benefits might be given to all who repent and believe in Christ. And so here we see man in covenant, that as long as they keep this commandment, this positive command, which ultimately, wouldn't it, would be an extension of God's moral law, of loving the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving one another and their offspring that they're to fill the earth with more than themselves, that they would not only obey God's positive law, but in obeying the positive law would fulfill God's moral law. But as long as they kept this commandment, the man and the woman created two things, communion with God and dominion over the creatures. And they enjoyed those things unbreakably, in an unbreakable fashion and yet in a mutable fashion in the context of a covenant. And so here we have just three paragraphs on the doctrine of creation, of God's glory in creation and of God's image in creation of what man is and what God's created him to be and how God has created mankind in the context of a covenant. And you realize, as we'll see when we get to paragraph six and again to paragraph seven and elsewhere in the confession, that all of mankind continues to exist in covenant with God. There is not one man anywhere, or woman, when I say man, I just mean mankind. There is not one person anywhere at any time that does not exist in covenant with God, either by the broken covenant of works from the garden or according to the covenant of grace in Christ. All men for all time hang on the belts of one or the other Adam, without exception. They're either in the first Adam and deserving of condemnation and death because of sin, or they are in Christ, who gives to all who are in him eternal life. So you can see the doctrine of creation not only exalts God's glory, but sets us up as a glorious picture of what God is going to do in his work of redemption in Christ.